Let's pray. Father, what a day it will be when our Savior appears. Lord, the thought of looking at end times and eschatology, the study of last things, can often have folks breaking out in a rash. <laughs> it's assumed it's divisive. It's assumed it's, well, we don't know these things. We just trust the Lord. And there's much we don't understand. But Lord, you have given a promise and you've given us hope and assurance. Lord, we as believers are apocalyptic. We do look to the end. We look to the day, that glorious day when your son returns. Father, guide us as we go to this difficult passage. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn to Luke 21. And if you have just joined us, we've been journeying through the gospel of Luke. I'd like to say for the last four years, but our church is only 15 months old. <laughs> but uh, we're on target to end right at Easter week. And I'm excited about how that will fit with the text. After our study of Luke, we'll move to the book of Nehemiah. I thought it was most fitting as we enter a capital campaign to look at that wonderful book nestled in the Old Testament. But we're at Luke 21 today, starting in verse 5. And as I was working on this text this week, it reminded me of an event that happened, oh, it was several months ago. Uh, I had, actually it was a baptismal service, and I had brought a change of clothes and put my stuff in this uh, backpack that I had and so then I was changing because we we needed to leave after the baptismal service and the zipper got caught with my shoestring in it and I could not get it undone and I tried forever it was crazy and I, the people were leaving we needed to go I took out a pocket knife and I cut my shoestring I, thought, I give up and the bags ruined the shoe was ruined I was like this is crazy and there's times when you go to the scriptures and you think, maybe I, if I just had a pocket knife, <laughs> that might be the good thing to do here. Just sever it, we'll move on. Uh, no, we're not going to bury our heads or avoid a, t a text of a scripture because all scripture is God-breathed and it has much to teach us. And there's some great gems, even though we don't fully understand maybe all that's transpiring here or there's a lot of debate. There's much here that we can all agree on that's so powerful. And I don't want us to miss that in this text today. Luke 21, 5 through, well, really, we're going to look at 19, but eventually we'll look at the latter half, first through, all the way through to verse 27 next week. Has a counterpart in Matthew 22 and also in Mark. Matthew and Mark's accounts are far more exhaustive in what Jesus taught on this subject. But this, this sermon is called the Olivet Discourse. Again, keep in mind, we're in the last week here as Jesus is looking to go to the cross. And we started the week with him being presented at the temple, the Palm Sunday. This is our king. And, and we've seen the attacks of the religious rulers. And now it's time for the disciples to ask a question, which we'll see here in, starting in verses 5 and 6. So let's look at the text. It says, now while some were speaking about the temple, this is the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and offerings. And I suspect if you stand on the Mount of Olives, even today you overlook, which is now the Dome of the Rock, but that area, and it's a beautiful view. And they're looking at the great temple. And I said, man, this, this sucker is unbelievable. Herod the Great spared no expense. 
And Jesus said, as for these things that you're gazing at, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another. All of it will be torn down. Now, let's look at a couple pictures because a picture's worth a thousand words. This is a model of the temple at the time of Jesus. The temple proper you see in the center and then it's expanded to this enormous platform. Jerusalem's population was probably around 45 to 65,000 residents in the first century. It would double in size, some, some say triple in size during the pilgrims, the Pentecost, uh, Passover, and you need a place for all these worshipers and that's what you would have here on this temple complex. Herod the Great will take the Jewish temple. If you remember, the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple. Remember your history in 586 BC. Eventually, the Jews will return. They will rebuild the temple, but it ain't what she used to be, the temple of Zerubbabel, if you recall. And Herod comes along in the first century, really 19 BC, and says, let me remodel this. And he will expand it 35 acres, making it the largest temple precinct in all of ancient history. People don't realize that. They think, immediately think Egypt, perhaps. He will hire, employ, I should say, 18,000 people to work on this amazing temple. Here's another view of that complex from the other side. This is major entrances for the priest as well as for the offerings. If you look closely, I think this always helps to see this. That little circle area is what we call the Wailing Wall today, or the Western Wall. So you can imagine how massive the structure is. If you've seen pictures of the Jews going down to pray at the Wailing Wall, they call it the Western Wall in Israel. That is just that little section of Herod's platform of the temple complex. It was enormous. He trained over 1,000 priests just to do the temple complex itself, the, the, the temple, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, because he didn't want to be sacrilegious. Remember, Herod the Great, is a, he's a half-Jew, and he needs to win the Jewish population over. What a, no, no better way than to, to remodel the temple, right? Expand the temple complex. And these were his endeavors. And notice the text tells us they noticed the beautiful stones and offerings the mission states, if you didn't see the Jewish temple, you never saw a great building. <laughs> and Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, stated that, that Herod spared no expense. He brought white marble in and adorned it. Gold laced the top of the, the temple proper. It was massive. Augustus, the emperor of Rome, came to Jerusalem to see this great structure. It was incredible. And Jesus then says, in the light of this, he said, yeah, and in, in its grandeur, he states in verse 6, yeah, and not one stone will be left. They're going, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? I've got two volunteers. Uh, if they'll come up, if you two, Stella and Josiah, you guys come up here. I want to show you, in fact, as they're coming up, I'm going to show you a photo here as we look at these stones, these massive structure here of the temple complex. This is a photo of, I, I had four adults stand on one of the stones on the outside, but I'm going to show you something else. I've asked Josiah, if you'll stand on that green spot right over there. From Stella to Josiah, that is one of the stones that was used. 44 feet long, it was carved not in place, it was brought. 
It's estimated it weighs 500 and some tons, which I, if you do the math with the Titanic, which weighs five, I think it was five tons, no, five tons, 50 tons, excuse me, it would be 10 Titanics. The largest stone in Stonehenge is only five tons. Massive. This was hand carved and brought in the place. So you get this idea. Thank you very much for my volunteers. Well done. You did so well. Yes. Yeah. I'm not saying you have rocks in your head. That's me. All right. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left. Now, we know that when the Romans destroyed the temple complex, and I can show you this because there's ruins we see even today. If you look at this, this is the street along the south, or excuse me, the uh, uh, western uh, wall of the temple complex. And you can see where some folks are standing. That is the street from the time of Jesus, first century. And you can see the ruins and the stones that were knocked off, that were brought down onto the street. And some say, well, the stones are still standing, so Jesus' prophecy was wrong. I, I think Jesus was referring to the temple proper, and it was raised to the ground. And we know in 130 under Hadrian, under the second Jewish revolt, it was completely wiped out and raised to the ground. Some argue, no, the statement is simply stating it's going to be completely destroyed. Either way, it was in 70 AD, and then Hadrian comes back and he bans all Jews from Rome or from Jerusalem and will raise the structure all the way to the ground. You say, well, thank you for that discussion, David. I really appreciate that. What does that fit here? First of all, you need to understand, for the, for the Jew living in the first century, the temple was everything. It was their identity. It was their political center. It was their religious center. It was their economic center. It was who they were. And the pride of in the first century to say, look at the structure we have. This is our temple. And Jesus said, yeah, that's great. It's going to be destroyed. The thought was horrible. And as we know in 70 AD, it does, it does happen that way. And of course, one of the questions is, why didn't Jesus stop this? God's will or plan is never divorced from his sovereign loving hand, but it's also not divorced from his justice, his holiness, and glory. In fact, there are more references in scripture to God's wrath and anger than there is to his love. We serve a holy God. We sang about it in the very first song. Israel has had its chance to respond to Christ. They haven't. I mean, look at the triumphal entry. This is your Lord. And yet there's not a response. And Jesus states in Luke 19, he weeps over Jerusalem. And now we see him stating, yes, it's going to be destroyed. Just as it was with the Babylonians, just as it was with the Greeks who desecrated it under Antiochus Epiphanes. And now we see the, the prediction that the Romans will destroy it as well. Notice the response that Jesus gives. For as for these things... And you ask, what are the these? Because it says, teacher, they ask the same thing in verse 7. When will these things happen? Notice the disciples never question, wait a minute, Jesus, this can't happen to this glorious building. It's taken nearly 80 years. In fact, they will still, they're still working on it at the time of Jesus, even though they started in 19 BC. You can't imagine, Lord, that this is going to be destroyed. Really? No, they never question that. In fact, what the disciples want to know is when and what. Now, if we looked at Matthew and Mark's accounts, we see that 
there's more that is highlighted. They want to know the sign of the Lord's coming in connection to this. And I would argue that these things isn't just the destruction of the temple. It deals with all that which entails the end times. Bear with me, because you're asking, well, how did they get that connection? In fact, we see this even in verse 27. Look at the text, Luke 21, 27. Then they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and great glory. So the context we also see from Matthew and Mark, the disciples, they hear the temple is going to be destroyed and immediately their mind goes to the end times. And you have to ask why. Why did they go there? Why did Jesus have to highlight this? I was recently talking to a friend about the Germans uh, fighting the French. And I said, there was a commemorative from 1906 that I was, this plaque. And he goes, oh, wait a minute, you mean World War I? I said, no, no, <laughs> no, I meant the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. But when you think about it, the Germans and the French have fought several wars, haven't they? There's been this ongoing effect. And, and that, you could argue, is with the temple. It was destroyed by the Babylonians, as we stated. And now we see that it's going to be destroyed here by the Romans. And I would argue in the future. Because according to Daniel 12, Amos 2, and Zechariah 14, there's a future Jerusalem temple that will be destroyed in the end. You see, the disciples hear the destruction of the temple, and their mind is going to Old Testament prophecy about end times and judgment. Now bear with me here, because this is where it can get a little sticky. The and the connection, I would argue, is what we call the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that occurs numerous times throughout the Old Testament and even in the New. The day of the Lord anticipates a time of Israel's deliverance, but also of judgment. It was a period of God pouring out his wrath and a restoration of Israel. Listen to Zechariah 14. It says, See a day is coming for the Lord when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses looted, the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile. The rest of the people shall be cut off. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights in a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Then the Lord God will come and all the holy ones with him. So put yourself in the disciples' shoes, first century. Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed. You're standing on the Mount of Olives. What are you thinking? This is it. You're our king. We've announced that at the, at the triumphal entry. You, you've taken on the religious rulers. You've spanked them. They can't thwart you. And now this is it. That's what they're thinking, these things. The day of the Lord is a, is a common concept throughout prophetic literature. It occurs 13 times, 15 times in the Old Testament. And you look at the characteristics of the day of the Lord. This, if you're jotting down notes, this is, this is so helpful. Because this is the mindset of when they hear the temple being destroyed, they're thinking, ah, this is the period in which it's marked by several things. First of all, it's a time of great judgment and wrath. I love Amos 5. It's one of my favorite texts. Listen to what the Amos states. Alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. In other words, you're crazy. 
right? Why do you want the day of the Lord, he asked. It's darkness, not light. And if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and then rested his hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake, <laughs> that's a bad day, right? You flee the lion, you flee the bear, you get into the house and then a snake bites you. Bummer. But it says, I will plant upon their land. They shall never again be plucked up out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord their God. Well, I'm sorry, I jumped further. But this day of the Lord is judgment, first of all. We'll get to the second thing I was just reading. But so first of all, it's judgment. It's judgment and wrath. Second of all, it's an overthrow of God's enemies. Listen, Israelites living, Jews living in the first century, they love to get rid of Rome as a whole. Oh, you got the Sadducees who love the Romans. But for the most part, they don't like Rome. We love to get rid of Rome. This idea of, of military attack and destruction is seen in Isaiah 2. The day of the Lord was to throw off the enemy. Third, the day of the Lord is an idea of returning of Israel to the Lord. And this was Amos 9, the text what I was reading. But listen carefully to Amos 9 in light of our study of Luke thus far. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine, and they shall make gardens and eat the fruit. Think about the parable of the wicked tenants, right, that we studied in the whole vineyard. They will return. It's Romans 9 through 11, the promise of the restoration of Israel. The day of the Lord will also be sudden and unexpected. Acts 1, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Once again, Jesus raises from the dead. Disciples are there. This is it. Let's go. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're still missing it. You're not understanding what's happening here. This is what's, what we're trying to accomplish. The day of the Lord, we see it throughout Scripture, it comes like a thief. It's unexpected. The time frame of the day of the Lord, there will be signs within it. Yes. And we'll get to that in a minute. The day of the Lord begins, I would argue, with the tribulation, and it ushers in the millennial age. Zephaniah 1 talks about the Lord's wrath, the, the, his wrath that will, will be spilled out on the entire earth. And again, the concept of the day of the Lord is not foreign in, in the New Testament. First and second Thessalonians, Revelation. Talk about this time, this tribulation period when God will judge and at the concluding of that period, the Lord will return and establish his kingdom with, and restore the promises that, that have been made to Israel. And so... I would argue that the, the Olivet Discourse's background is the day of the Lord. This is the prophecy that they have heard, that they've understood, they, the, the disciples. And when Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed, immediately their mind leaps to, this is it. This is what we've longed for. And if you don't think they've been longing for this, do you, don't forget what Peter said on the Mount of Transfiguration. Hey, let's build, three, let's build booze. Let's, let's set up shop. This is it. And God has to say, oh, Peter, be quiet. <laughs> you, you don't understand. The first thing that your Messiah will do is he's going to suffer. That's what they didn't expect. And so the Olivet Discourse, I would argue, that is the, this backdrop is the day of the Lord, which serves as the basis for the disciples' questioning. 
One writer states the events that would take place in 70 AD would be another prelude to the final astrological, that's a study of end times, fulfillment. An occurrence of the type projecting the antitype yet further into the future. What's he saying? It's a pattern. It's a reference to a first century destruction of Jerusalem with yet a future fulfillment. And that's where this, this text gets a little sticky. Because you're saying, okay, is Jesus referring to 70 AD? Is referring to the future? And where do you draw the lines? I have the joy of having trifocals. That is not a joy, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And depending on where I look is where it's like, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I had one of my ch children, I won't tell you which one, said, Dad, you kind of look a little snooty at times when you raise your head. It says, I can't see. That's why I have to do that, right? It's like, oh, okay, there you are. Uh, the, 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 and, and depending on where I'm looking depends on how clearly I can see in that particular period. And I would argue in some ways that's prophecy. There's an immediate view here, which is 70 AD, but there's also a future view, and, and I'll show you that, I think, in the text. It's, it's, I think it's clear, and that's what we're going to see here as we go into verses 8 through 9, because the Lord says, watch out. Look at this, verse 8. Watch out that you are not misled. There's three commands here. First is to watch. Second is do not follow those who claim that they're me. And finally, he says, don't fret when you hear all of these things that are clamoring. Because notice what the text thing says. For these things must happen first, but the end will not come at once. I would argue these are signs, but they, they don't signal the end, but they will increase in intensity as time approaches. And what's that? What's he saying? There'll be many things that will be stated that are wrong. Many will be misled. And it, that deception will lead to fear. Why? Because Satan delights in deception and fear, doesn't he? <laughs> it's one of his greatest tools. He's been using it for a long time, all the way back to Genesis 3. Really, did the Lord say that? Oh, you, no, 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 no. Let me, let me help you out here. <laughs> and, and so it's been ongoing. And these are the signs and... and that, that we're going to see more and more. And Jesus said, be careful. And then he gets to verse 10. Then he says, no, what's going to happen in this day of the Lord, which you know is that nation will rise up against nation. World War I, the war that would end all wars. <laughs> I don't think so. That's why World War II was so shocking. Europe lost far more in World War II than they did in World War I. And with that are great earthquakes, verse 11, famines, plagues, pandemics, <laughs> sights and sounds from heaven that are terrifying. And all of this is going to occur here in, at this, in the end. He says, yeah, the temple that, that's being destroyed, that's these things. It's what's going to characterize the end. And again, these things will intensify, but yes, there's elements of it even today. There's no doubt. But when we get to the end, it'll be very clear. And you, you read this, and it's, it's you know, I, I feel like verse 9 just rings loud and clear. Do not be afraid. You hear all that's happening? And you go, oh, but what a comfort to know. The Lord already knows. 
right? He's, he's, he's giving us the game plan. Well, this is what's going to transpire. No surprise to the Lord. And it's a comfort to know no one will overturn the Lord's plan. David Wells says, God in his sovereignty makes even evil serve his purpose. The book of Revelation, you, you should go through and look at how many times God is in charge. The Antichrist who kills the harlot, it says God put it in their hearts to do it. God's in charge. And I read all this, the Lord's in charge. He knew about 70 AD, and he knows what transpires in the future. And so he says in verse 12, but before all this, now again, we have a, a temporal marker here. So this happens in the day of the Lord, that is, uh, verses 10 and 11. And he says, before this, as that unfolds, which many would argue is the latter part of the tribulation period when things are really bad, is even before that in verse 12, they will seize you and persecute you. And, and why? Why would they do this? The text is very clear in verse 12, because of my name. Jesus stated, the world will hate you because they hate me. It's not Buddha's name that's used in vain. Or Allah, it's Jesus. Which every time I hear that, I just want to break out in a rash. I had a high school teacher who was great. It was a public school, and if someone said, oh, Jesus Christ, he would stop and say, oh, are you praying? Would you like to pray for us? <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> He's not the one who thought he reincarnated from Moses. But anyway, we won't go down that road. Right? And verse 12 says, because of his name, it's repeated in verse 17. You will be hated by everyone, not because they don't like you, but they don't like Jesus. And he said, listen, as time progresses and, and we get closer to the end, persecution is going to be seen. And this is nothing foreign. And, and ironic that the false teachers will come in Jesus' name and they will be accepted, but heaven help you if you truly promote Jesus Christ, the one from Nazareth. And one of the questions that scholars debate is, who is the you here that Jesus is referring to? Because he's talking about the end time. So is he referring to the immediate listeners or is he talking about the end and, and the, the who? Well, there, with that comes many who would argue the events that we see here that are spelled out in Luke's gospel are events that occurred in the first century, that none of this is future. There are several problems with that. I'll give you three. First of all, Matthew 23 says that at this time, Israel's repentance will precede his coming. There was no repentance in AD 70. I can assure you, you read the history books. Josephus gives us great detail what happened to the destruction of Jerusalem. There wasn't a massive revival. Uh-uh. Secondly, when Jesus comes, there is joy and blessing that comes to Israel as they affirm him as the Messiah. We see that in Romans 11. That didn't occur in AD 70 either. And I would argue there are other facts that just do not correspond with the Romans' destruction of the temple. If this really is the end time prophecy in AD 70, according to Daniel, the abomination of desolation desecrates the temple. Well, that didn't happen with the Romans. They completely just destroyed it. They didn't offer foreign sacrifice, pagan sacrifice in the temple, etc. So who is the you then that Jesus is referring to? 
Well, the second person plural here can be used to refer to people that are not living at that time frame. Let me give you an example. Matthew 23 says the Lord refers to the death of Zechariah, which occurred centuries before, and he says, you who murdered him. Well, wait a minute. That crowd's not the same crowd that existed at the time of Zechariah. And so it's the you can be used to look forward or backwards. And, and I think there's a reason for that. And that is, again, this pattern of God's activity. What appears in Jerusalem in AD 70 will be similar to the end, which brings the return of Christ. Religious persecution, think about this, has occurred throughout time. Cain killed Abel. Jesus promised that his people would suffer. And I, I would argue that what we have here is, is most likely a pattern. Though, within this context, I think the direct context is referring to the tribulation period. Those who stand will be persecuted. Either way, you could go with this. But certainly through the church age, it has faced persecution. I hope that makes sense. Well, let me give you an example. <laughs> you say, okay, yeah, I know about China, North Korea, and Iran, where Christians are, are being imprisoned or even killed for their faith. But I hope you've been watching the news even this last week. We, we, we only need to go to Finland, a country with 68% claiming to be Protestant. But if you've been watching the news, a Finnish member of the parliament, Paola Sanin, and a Lutheran bishop, entered a courtroom this week in Helsinki. They are on trial for their faith. Yes, in Finland. And what is the issue? In fact, their faith has been a three-year-long battle. Pavi, a 62-year-old medical doctor and grandmother of seven, faces three charges of so-called ethnic agitation for expressing her belief in the teachings of the Bible that she published in a pamphlet on marriage in 2004 for taking part in discussion on a radio show in 2019 and recently posting a tweet with a picture of a Bible passage from Romans 1. For this, she could face up to two years imprisonment. Verdict will be delivered in March. The bishop, what is he guilty of? <laughs> He's also guilty of or being charged of ethnic agitation. His mistake, he hosted her booklet on his church website. If he's convicted, he too will face two years. They're being charged with hate speech. Unless you take, you need to take heed. Because <laughs> what happens in Finland will affect the EU and eventually North America. They're, they're guilty, so being charged, that they are espousing basic Christian theology about sex and marriage, which reserves sex exclusively for within marriage. The Finnish prosecutor claims century-old Christian teachings about sex incite hatred and violate legal preferences for government-privileged identity groups. End of statement. Wow. What did Jesus say? Yes, you shouldn't be surprised. They hate me, not you. I love the bishop from Finland. I was listening to a podcast that he gave, he said, I'm not concerned about me. I'm concerned about the church. I'm concerned about Christ's name here in Finland. Thought, wow. Unbelievable. And this is great. Jesus just doesn't say, I hope it all turns out well for you. 
All the best in the midst of persecution. No, 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 no. He gives us some promises. Look at the text. He says, first of all, you have the glorious opportunity to testify publicly. Notice that? He says, you have the opportunity to serve as my witnesses before governors and kings, synagogues, etc. All this persecution for the name of Jesus, that phrase occurs 17 times in the book of Acts. It shows it's Jesus' central position and the importance of allegiance in God's plan. I love the text in Acts 4, after they have suffered, it says the believers rejoiced because they were found worthy to exalt the name of the Lord. <laughs> and what a privilege we have to testify to the things of Christ, right? What a, Corey Timboom, I've referred to before, you know, served in the Holocaust because they were caught hiding Jews in Amsterdam. She said that it was forbidden to have Bible lessons or to sing hymns in the concentration camp, and she led them. And she said uh, one day she was leading a Bible study, and a lady, that, one of the ladies that she was teaching, looked at her with great horror. And she turned around and she said, The worst female guard was standing right behind her. And the lady, the guard, said, What are you doing? And Corey said, I'm talking about my Savior. Would you like me to share with you? And the lady listened. And Corey said, I had the great privilege of testifying to a Nazi guard in a concentration camp. Wow. It doesn't end there. The Lord says as well, you will be brought before. He says, when this happens, verse 14, therefore be resolved. You don't have to rehearse. I'm going to give you what you need to say. Now, it's not an excuse for lazy teachers and pastors. But it is an assurance that the Lord will empower. He will give us what we need when we need it. I mean, those of you who have children, you don't give your kids money for the school outing three months in advance, right? You give it to them when they need it. Otherwise, there's a real problem. And, and God will enable and God will also, the text tells us, protect. I think of John 17. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. This is Jesus praying to the Father for us. Is I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Notice the text states, it says, you'll be betrayed and people are going to hate you in verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish. And you say, wait a minute, there are martyrs. How can you say no, one, no one's going to hurt you? I think what he's referring to is ultimate destruction here. Security is sure despite the persecution and even the potential loss of life, but not your eternal life. And that's another promise we see here to those who are persecuted. There's an eternal pledge. Endurance leads to salvation, we see here. So your endurance will gain your lives. It's not that works as part of your salvation, but it shows that your faith is sure, that you've clinged to this one name, that is Jesus and you not cease to trust him. First Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by his great mercy, has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and I love this, kept, it's passive. In other words, the Lord is keeping it in heaven for you. Who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed 
in the last times. <laughs> and so, as we unfold this text, and we will do so as well next week, and we'll look more at Daniel's prophecy next week. But as we, this unfolds, and Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, the disciples immediately understand in the context of the day of the Lord and end times. And Jesus is trying to sort through that for them and say, well, yes, that is a pattern, but there is a day coming. And in that tribulation period, he is going to protect. But again, I would argue there's a pattern and there's other scriptures which clearly teach God is going to protect those who stand eternally. He will give them the words to say. And this grandmother that's a political figure, this bishop in Finland, God's giving them the words to say. Doesn't mean we as a church don't rally around them, we don't pray for them. But throughout history, we've seen God's promises time and time again come to fruition. So what do we do with this? There's three things I want to leave with you there in your notes. When you talk about eschatology, people do break out in a rash. You know, I've heard it. Well, I'm not pre-mill or post-mill. I'm a, a pan-mill. It all pans out at the end. <laughs> right? You've heard it all. There's great truths here that we can't miss because the Lord is coming back and we are apocalyptic. We are looking to the end. There is a day coming just as it was literally fulfilled that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It will be literally fulfilled. He will come back. Satan knows it. He knows it full well. And three things in your notes. First of all, the sovereignty of God, which is wed with perfect love and grace, provides the greatest source of comfort and peace. Our Lord is not a cool steel shelter that's going to protect you or a soft, cuddly teddy bear that's going to wrap his arms around you. No, no. Our God is a heavenly Father who loves us and has the ability to shield and protect us from harm. Vance Havner stated, men and women love everything but righteousness and fear everything but God. Great statement. I love the lyrics to the hymn, when answers aren't enough. It says, you have faced the mountains of desperation. You have climbed, you have fought, you have won. But this valley that lies coldly before you cast a shadow you cannot overcome. When answers aren't enough, there is Jesus. He's more than just an answer to your prayer. Your heart will find a safe and peaceful refuge. When answers aren't enough, he is there. Psalm 91, who, you, who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, who says to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress in God, my God, I can trust. <laughs> These disciples have to be short-circuiting right? <laughs> Lord, we thought, is this it? Are you establishing the kingdom? Are you judging our enemies? And the Lord says, no, 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 no. This is what's going to transpire, but don't, don't worry. I, I will be there. And, and all of this is just whirling. They're trying to sort through the, the theology of the Old Testament and what Jesus is telling them. Cling to Psalm 91. It can be said to us as a church, you who live in the shelter of the Most High, we can say to our God, he is our refuge and our fortress in whom we can trust. God is sovereign. Secondly, not only does he provide against this, he provides as a source of comfort and of peace, the sovereignty of God reveals an answer to our insufficiencies and our relief to feelings of inadequacy, false guilt, and shame. We can depend on him. 
Psalm 46, echoing similar to the text we just read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Right? We will not fear. Uh, Michael Wilcox stated, we do not need Christ to tell us that the world is full of troubles. Got that part. But we do need his explanation of history if its troubles are not to be meaningless. Without prophecy, history, I would argue, is meaningless. We're just wandering this globe. What does this all mean? Ah, there's a day coming. The Lord is orchestrating the events. He is sovereign. He's already laid out the plan. He's already, this is how it's going to be. Read the book of Revelation. It just unfolds just as God anticipates. And that leads us to the third. The sovereignty of God rules out the possibility of unbridled evil winning or that God's cosmic plan might fail. The Almighty has everything completely under his control. I love this. Now and for all eternity. Isaiah 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have designed, so shall it be. Don't you love that? As I have planned, the Lord states, so it shall come to pass. Amen. Amen. No finished court is going to thwart the plan of God. In fact, I'll argue they're going to do his bidding. It's not a coincidence that Herod the Great built a temple and brought peace to this part of the world for a time for the gospel. It's not a coincidence that Greek was the international language so that when Paul wrote to the Romans, it could be read to those in North Africa. God's timing. It's not a coincidence that he's placed Community Bible Fellowship here at this stage, at this point in juncture of history. Jerry Bridges states, God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. God is perfect in love. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. That's our God. That is our Lord. Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you that you're the sovereign God who has orchestrated all events. Nothing takes you by surprise. You know full well where we are headed. You've already written the end because God, you are a God of, you created time. You're outside it, you're in it. And Lord, you've promised there's a day coming when you will judge and then you will restore and those fulfill those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we can say it is well. Because we know you are on the throne. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.